hope you uh, brought your copy of God's Word with you tonight. We'll be headed to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, this is the second part of a two-part, I guess, sermon um, called A Portrait of Christ. And so uh, we're going to finish this one particular section um, and close out 2018 as a college ministry on our Wednesday nights by uh, finishing looking at Christ, which is awesome to do together as we think about uh, in a few days we'll celebrate Christmas and what that means for us. So uh, Colossians chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse number 18, if you would stand with me as we pay honor to the reading of God's word tonight. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and he is the head of the body the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross." That's the reading of God's word. May he bind it to our heart and make it clear what we need to do with it this evening. Let's pray together this evening. Father, we come before you tonight and we are so thankful that we have the opportunity to gather, to worship you, to sing songs about you and to you, to hear your word and then to respond to you, Father. And we just are humbled by the fact that you've allowed us to gather together again this evening. That you've given us another day of life and breath, another day chock full of opportunities to bring glory to your name, and we ask that you uh, forgive us for areas where we've fallen short of that today. And God, we also know tonight that we're not the only church in town. We know that we're not the only ministry that exists. We think of other ministries across the city. We think of the college ministry at Cherry Street under the direction of Kevin Adams. We ask that you would bless that ministry, that you would see it become fruitful and, and grow as a result of their faithfulness to your word. And we know there are other churches in the city. Father, we think of National Heights, and, and their pastor, Vaughn Weatherford, God, we ask that you would, you would bless their ministry, that you would uh, see them grow. Father, we know that Crossway is not equipped, nor can we reach every single person in the city. And so we're asking that you would create revival, even if it's at the church down the road. And Father, tonight, all over the globe, as the holidays near close, we have missionaries that are sharing the gospel apart from their extended families who will not be joining their loved ones this holiday season because they've paid the ultimate sacrifice in taking the gospel to the far reaches of our globe. And so we, we think of Jonathan and Mia Jaffrey, who are missionaries in Africa, and Josh and Megan Baylor, missionaries in Europe, both with the IMD. We ask that you would comfort them this holiday season. Let them understand the fullness of Christ as they serve you uh, away from their families. And Father, we also know tonight, and we're very much aware each and every week when we gather, that there are people who have never heard the name of Christ. We think of the Berber people in France, and we also think of the Kazakh people in Kazakhstan. Father, our hearts can be broken. That we stand in a room with so many Bibles, knowing what the grace and mercy and love of Christ is, there are people in our globe who don't know you. If they die tonight, they'll spend eternity in hell separated 
praying that God raise up missionaries from our church. Raise up missionaries from our college ministry that would risk it all to go. That would never grow comfortable in following you. Give us a, a heart for the unreached around us. So, Father, again, we ask tonight that you would work in a mighty and powerful way through your word. Give us a sweet time together as we fellowship. It's in your son's name that we ask these things. Amen. When we talk about different portraits, uh, last week I showed you a, a, a picture uh, of a famous portrait um, that is called American Gothic that um, is now famous but rather infamous for not communicating clearly or the author or painter, artist behind it, not clearly communicating to his audience what the intended meaning behind it was. But tonight I'm going to show you a different picture. This is actually a photograph here. This is a photograph that a California company a few years ago authenticated as one of the holy grails of Western Americana. Only the second confirmed image of the notorious bandit Billy the Kid. The four by five inch photograph with Billy the Kid there on wearing the top hat. Let's just go with that because I can't get my directions about me right now. This was bought for $2 in 2010 at an antique shop by Randy Giarjo of Fremont, California. And according to an insurance company that specializes in Western Americana and rare coins, the photograph shows that shows here Billy the Kid and the members of the Lincoln County Regulators gang playing a game of croquet, of all things. You remember Billy the Kid allegedly shot Eight to 22 people. I can't get a firm number. I don't know why we can't get something between those two numbers figured out. But eight to 22 people he personally killed. It's one of the most notorious figures of the early frontier and the wild, wild west. Not Will Smith, but Billy the Kid. The insurance company appraises this particular picture as being worth $5 million. Not a bad turn of profit to take $2 and turn it to $5 million. And it's really funny if you go online and you watch this guy being interviewed because he's like, yeah, and then I picked it up and I was like, I think this might be Billy the Kid. I'm like, no, you didn't. You had no idea. You thought, hey, cool, an old picture, two bucks. I'm hang this in the front room. My wife will be happy. It'll sit on some little stand and it'll fill our Western decor room or something only to find out that it's worth $5 million. You know, your life would probably change if you went home today and you found something the size of an, a, a large index card that you bought for $2 that's now worth $5 million. You, you would treat it differently, you'd handle it differently, your life would look differently for it. But here's the deal. Christians, a lot of times, treat Christ, the $5 million object, as if he's just a $2 throwaway antique photograph. They have the most valuable possession possible. 
and they treat it like it's nothing more than a $2, two-bit piece of junk at an antique store. How do you fix that problem? How do you resolve to make sure that you don't fall into that problem? Some of you might be saying, well, that's not me. But it easily can be you, and it easily can be me, that we don't value Christ, and we don't esteem him rightly, and we don't see him as most beautiful and as most glorious. How do we, how do we avoid that trap? Well, it's by seeing him rightly. And here in Colossians, we have spent... The last two weeks now, this week and last week, looking at this portrait of Christ that Paul paints for us here in Colossians chapter 1. And tonight, again, we're struck with three things that we can take away from Colossians chapter 1 that press into us the ever-present reality of who Christ is. And we can see him rightly and worship him rightly for who he is. So what are those three things that we can see that we could say... After this week, we've got six things that if we're tempted to um, devalue Christ or not see him rightly, we can run to these six words and use them as a kind of tonal reset in our own mind to go to this particular passage and be reminded of who Christ is. Well, the first word that I want to draw your attention to tonight is this word, the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone. Look at verse 18, and he is the head of the body the church. We have to stop here because Paul makes it clear that Christ is the head of the body of the church. He's the foundation, or we could say that he is the cornerstone. Well, you might say, why would you say he's the cornerstone? Well, because a cornerstone is a good symbolic gesture of who Christ is. Because when the cornerstone of a brick building is set, all of the construction that takes place from that moment forward is based on the cornerstone. You go away from the cornerstone, you're in trouble. Your building's in disarray. And the church needs to be reminded often. Our college ministry needs to be reminded often that Christ is the head of the church. I'm not the head of the church. Pastor Eddie's not the head of the church. No staff person's the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. And churches all over the country, and our church too, can begin to get off course when we pull our eyes off of Christ and put it anywhere else. It's incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. By identifying that Christ is the head over the church, what Paul is doing is he's pointing these Colossian believers to understand that the church is significant in as far as it submits to Christ. In as far as it submits to Christ, it can be powerful. It gets pulled off mission, it loses its power. You see, the church holds a very key place in salvific history, salvation history moving forward. It's the vehicle, it's the means by which God has ordained to change the world. The church, under the direction of Jesus Christ, is the change agent for lost people as the pastors of that church are faithful in accordance with Ephesians chapter 4 to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So that means that our church primarily 
should be concerned with two things, equipping you to fulfill the ministry of the church and by leveraging you, seeing people come to know Christ. We're tempted sometimes to say, that's the staff's responsibility. We're tempted to say, the staff gets paid to do this. We're tempted to create two categories of church member. The church member who's not on staff and the church member who is on staff. And somehow along the way, the Western church has said that if the church member who's on staff is somehow more responsible to see people come to know Christ and to reach people and disciple them than the other people. And what this does is we begin to shift our eyes away from Christ and we begin to put them on our staff and we elevate them to places that they don't belong. And then when they do something dumb or God help us, they sin. We're like, well, I can't believe that a pastor would do that. Or even worse, I can't believe that a pastor's kid would do that. As if somehow becoming a pastor or being placed in the office of a pastor, being ordained by God as his under-shepherd to the church, makes you perfect. I can assure you, and Jessica will come right behind me and affirm this, that I am far from perfect. That I am a sinner who stands in need of God's grace. And if you for one minute, in whatever warped way, think that I don't struggle with sin, or I don't struggle with doubt, or I don't struggle to respond properly, or I don't struggle with anything that you struggle with, you're, you're wrong. As lovingly as I can say that to you tonight, you're wrong. Don't put your hope in me. Don't put your hope in our pastors. We're sinners that need God's grace, that have been rescued by his grace, that have been called from darkness to light. But we're not the Savior. Only Christ is. And I want to encourage you. I want to encourage us. Like, look, I take this job very seriously. I, I, I understand the, the implications of calling. I've read First and Second Timothy. I've read First and Second Corinthians. I understand my responsibility as your pastor, and I, I, I am trying to be a good pastor. But what I have noticed over my short time of being called into the ministry, so from the age of 14 to the present, 15 years, we are far too quick to put our hope in men who communicate the truth of God's word rather than putting our hope in the actual word and in the actual person of Christ. And I want to call us tonight as a college ministry to not be caught up in whatever my personality is or whoever will replace me. Because guess what? I'm trying to pastor faithfully for the next college pastor. Because I know that I'm not going to be here forever. One day the Lord may call me away or he may kill me and take me home. 
I'm committed to being here and serving in this role as long as the Lord deems necessary. But you say, well, David, why are you belaboring this point and making so much so much of this right now about the office of pastor? Because if you don't understand the office of Christ first, your temptation will be to elevate the office of pastor over the office of Christ. The person and work of Christ, he is the head. He is the head of the church. Dick Lucas says this, if a body does not hold fast to its head, it can hardly hope to survive so much more for the church. If it doesn't hold fast to Christ, it can't help to survive. You, you want to know why we pray for other churches during our, our pastoral prayer leading into the sermon? Because I just I'm firmly convinced that Christ is the head of the universal church and he's ordained local churches as his outpost of the universal church to change the world. And I don't want to be so selfish to think that we're the only place in town that could see people come to know Christ. But I will tell you this. There are churches that I drive by in our city where I know they do not proclaim Christ. They deny the sufficiency of Christ. They deny the atonement of Christ. They deny what Christ is doing. And as I drive by them, I pray this specific prayer. Lord, change them or burn the place to the ground. And I pray the same thing for us. Lord, keep us focused on Christ or take us away. We have not even finished one chapter of the book of Colossians. And it's already shook me to my core. Because I recognize a temptation to trust myself. Rather than to sit there and beg God. That in this role or any other preaching opportunity, that his spirit might move in a mighty and powerful way. And that lost people will be converted for his glory, for his fame, for the name of Christ. So it leads me to ask you, have you submitted to Christ or to a man in this church? Are you committed to this church because of friendship? or because of relationships, or because of a personality type, or something other than Christ? And if the answer to that is anything other than because this church is committed to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, and committed to equipping churches, and church members, and sending out and starting churches that are committed to Christ, we need to refocus ourselves and make sure that our membership is contingent upon the proclaiming of Christ. Oh, that it would be beautiful. Oh, that it would be seen rightly for who he is. Are you regularly praying for the leaders of this church? Not that they would only know to do the will of God, but that they would be so Christ centered and Christ exalting it would just ooze out of them man I want to be that kind of person I want to be the person you can't be around without Christ showing not because of me but because of him and how he's transformed me and he's changed me and he's made me like his son I want to be that Christian I want to be the kind of Christian that oozes Christ he is seeps out of everything 
would make certain friendships die, I think. They would say things like, I don't like being around him. He's too much of a Jesus freak. I don't like being around him because all he wants to talk about is the Bible and Christ. He's not only the cornerstone, but he's preeminent. Look at at verse 18. After one phrase, let's finish the verse. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence? He's the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, that he might be supreme, that he might be exalted, that he might be lifted up, that he might be the most glorious object of our worship. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one to resurrect. reading this and I kind of fell into an argument with the Apostle Paul. I'm like, well, he's not really technically the firstborn of the dead. Like, isn't Lazarus, I mean, Lazarus gets raised from the dead. There's Jairus' daughter gets raised from the dead. Like, he he's not the, the first one to be raised from the dead. And it was like the Holy Spirit was anticipating that question because the next question that came to my mind is, well, who raised those people from the dead? Christ did. Who's the first and the last person to raise themselves by themselves? Because they are the person of God. Christ. He's the firstborn of the dead. Okay, Paul, you win. Good argument. Well, it lasted all of 30 seconds. It was really convicting. You know, I'm just going to be really honest right now. It was really convicting because you can be in this role and be really prideful. Like you go to school, you get some degrees, you think you know some stuff, and then you're in a study and you're like wrestling with the text because you want to preach it well. And you're like, no, I know this better than the Apostle Paul. And in that moment, you're like, whoa, that's like, you really don't want to be out there with that level of pride. And then you have to stop studying because now you you definitely need to get right with God for thinking, what, what is Paul talking about? Like, what does Paul know? Like, obviously Christ has risen other people. Oh, yes. Others need Christ to raise them, but Christ relies on no one else to raise himself from the dead. No other human agency, the Godhead working in perfect harmony, raises Christ from the dead. The supremacy of Christ, though, is for all times. That he might have preeminence. That in all things, not just some things. Aren't you glad tonight that Christ isn't just kind of supreme? That he's kind of in charge? That he's kind of sovereign. Aren't you glad that he's not kind of any of those things? We live in a lot of, in, a, in a world that is completely um, removed from actual sovereign kings and queens. Like, hey, look, we're always going to be fascinated when someone from the royal family gets married. 
because there's just some of us, there's just some part of being an American that's innately drawn to something that we broke off from. We're just like, it's cool. But just remember, you guys lost, and we're free. We know you left the EU, but we're, we've been free for a long time. We don't really have sovereigns anymore. Sure, you have the queen. She's kind of sovereign, but not off with your head sovereign. Has to deal with parliament sovereign. It's been a while since we had a good dictator. We've been controlled by, I mean, realistically, geopolitically, we've been controlled by dictators not much in the last 20 or 30 years. Like, just really haven't been. Terrorists, yes. Dictators, no. So in our mind, it can be easy to forget that when the Apostle Paul talks about Christ being preeminent in all things, he's not talking about a, a mere figurehead, as if Christ is just kind of like, yeah, I'm here, I'm wearing this stately garments, and we got a really sweet gig here in this castle, and my face is on the money, but I'm kind of reliant on the people to do stuff. No. We serve an all-sufficient, all-sovereign preeminent savior we serve christ who reigns completely day in and day out at the right hand of the father making intercession for us hebrews tells us that what confidence we have to boldly approach god because we know that christ is arguing the best defense attorney is arguing on our behalf and the reason why he's the best defense attorney for us arguing on our behalf is because he's not arguing for us, but he's arguing for himself. I've said this before and I'll say it again. It's the greatest defense attorney in the whole wide world when he says, you must forgive them because of what I have done. We all agree there is nothing inherently good in the heart of David Botts. Of his own merit, of his own accord, yes, he stands condemned. But he has placed his faith and trust in me alone. And because I have placed my righteousness on him, he stands before you blameless because he is robed, clothed in my righteousness. He's worthy to be worshipped because he's supreme. He's preeminent. Have you surrendered to the supremacy of Christ? Or you still think that you're in control? That somehow there's something that gives you the right to say, I'm the boss and you're not. Friend, if you've trusted in Christ, he is Lord of your life. And he isn't just Lord of the parts that you would like to give him. He's Lord of all of it. Because you see, Christ is either Lord of all of it or none of it. So that means there's got to be introspection regularly in our own lives where we're checking to make sure I'm not trying to keep something of my own. I'm not trying to hide something as if, like Jonah, if I get in this ship and go the opposite direction, God isn't going to know where I'm going. 
God knew exactly where he's going. That's why in the Hebrew text, it says that God threw a storm at Jonah. It wasn't like he's like, oh, let's just kind of bombard the world with storms. And hopefully we'll hit him. He throws it specifically at Jonah. And in our own lives, we're tempted to think far too often that we can hide. We can hide. But then not only are you submitted to the supremacy of Christ, but are you resting in it? When you're tempted this week, as those final grades roll and trickle their way into wherever they go into, are you tempted to find your identity in those grades? If a grade comes back lower than what you were hoping for, are you going to respond? Because just truthfully, some of you, and I was this way in college too, some of you, your identity is far more wrapped up in what that grade says about you than what Christ says about you. And you act like Job. You rip your clothes up, you sit in ash, and you wait for your friends to come alongside and mourn with you without speaking because you got this letter grade instead of that letter grade and all the implications of getting that letter grade instead of this letter grade. As if somehow, some way, God doesn't have a divine plan for you. And as you faithfully obey him, he directs your steps as you go. Like, oh, I got this grade. God can't use me for this anymore. Okay. Are you resting in the supremacy of Christ or in really the supremacy of your own self? So we see Christ as cornerstone. We see him preeminent. And then in verses 19 and 20, we're reminded of probably the greatest thing we need to be reminded of sitting six days out from Christmas. That he is Savior. Verse 19 says this. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. The Apostle Paul in these two verses. Just in case you forgot it. In verse 16 says for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers all things were created through him and for him so just in case you've forgotten he is savior he is lord over it all this is key for it pleased the father that in him all the fullness should dwell in the person of christ all the fullness of God dwells. So this is another argument that Christ isn't created at birth, but that he is God from time, eternity, past, to eternity present, to eternity future. All the fullness dwells in him. And that should remind us Tonight, that the fullness of salvation and rather, even more importantly, the fullness of life dwells in Christ and our relationship with him. That what it means to be complete, 
I, you, you watch these terrible movies, and you're like, you complete me. No. Not even close. Christ is the only thing that completes you. Because he's the only one that can fit what we sometimes refer to as the God-shaped hole that exists in your heart. That despite every other worldly thing you try and stuff in it, it always ends up coming short. Money, success, fame, sex, popularity, whatever it is that you try to, to place inside of the deepest longings of your heart are never satisfied, not because those things aren't good, provided that they're done under the care of God, but because those things aren't ultimate, only Christ is ultimate, and only Christ can satisfy. That's why we're always shocked. Christians are too, and, and I, I'm just... I don't want to be unkind tonight. But it's always amazing to me that when a celebrity takes their own life, some of the people who are the most surprised about that are Christians. As if somehow we don't understand how someone could get to the end of their rope thinking I have everything and I still don't feel fulfilled and I'm still not satisfied and I still don't have what I'm looking for. But they have everything from a worldly perspective. And we, it's like we're shocked that they would come to the end of their rope. How quickly we forget what Christ's presence does for us. And what the imparting of the Holy Spirit provides for us post-conversion. How quickly we forget that all I have, all I want, all I need is found in the person and work of Christ. That's what the, the Apostle Paul is pushing them to believe. And, and he's reminding them, verse 20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The cross is where Christ must go in order to reconcile all things to himself. And they said, this is a perfect place for us to end as we look towards Christmas and the new year. Because it's that sweet little baby in a manger that everyone's fine with celebrating. But the grown man in the person of Christ hanging on a cross, beaten, mocked, scorned, and bloodied, that's offensive. But make no mistake, the baby that lies in the manger that we celebrate on Christmas is on a path to the cross, even in that moment. He's already headed there. He already knows the course of his direction, his path, his purpose in taking on human flesh. Philippians chapter 2 tells us this, that he humbles himself, and becomes obedient to death, even the death of the cross. So as we gather and we celebrate Christmas, the coming of Christ, the God-man incarnate flesh, the fullness, the image of the invisible God. We must remember, he's headed for a bloody, painful, 
death. Because without it, you and I have no hope of being made right with him. The only hope of our reconciliation is through the blood of his cross. Have you been genuinely converted? Do you genuinely know Christ? Tonight you might be sitting here. Don't let another day or moment go by where you believe yourself to be converted all the while the Holy Spirit is convicting you of your need for Christ. And then, do you worship Him rightly? Do you see Him rightly? Are you falling before Him rightly? Do you live daily in the present reality? ever-present reality of Christ's work for you on the cross. Not something that you think of on Sundays. Not something you just think of on Wednesdays. But every day I'm preaching. You say, David, you talk about this all the time because we forget it. And we live like people who've never met him. Man, what kind of gratitude is present? I have a feeling, and I know feelings and emotions are deceptive and can lead you the wrong way. So just preface it that way. Our, our family has a tradition. On Christmas Eve, um, we eat the same food. Everybody gets to open up one present. But before we open any presents, we pull out a copy of God's word and we read the birth story of Christ in Luke chapter 2. I have a feeling, having spent the last few weeks going through the first part of Colossians, to have a new perspective, and not necessarily a new one that I didn't have before, but one that's fresh in my own mind, as I hear the birth narrative. I hear, uh, read aloud, the story of Christ coming to this earth. good reason to rejoice this holiday season not just for christmas we get all offended holiday season well whoop-de-doo there's good reason to celebrate this holiday season this christmas this new year this new year's day january 2nd 3rd all the way through another december 31st because make no mistake over 2,000 years ago a baby comes born of a virgin but he's on a path a war path, if you will, a war path to defeat death, hell, grave, and sin forever. All of sin, past, present, and future. And that's the person we have in Christ. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Crave College Ministry Sermons from Crossway Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. For more information about Crave, you can connect with us online at crosswaybc.org forward slash college or on social media at Crossway Crave. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you have a great day.